When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to From the Chair, and I'm your host, Mike Hamilton. Join us each episode as we talk to athletic directors from across America. We're going to talk about topics like leadership, career development, issues of the day, and I can promise you we're going to have some fun along the way, too. So sit back, listen in, and let's dive in. Let's go. All right, welcome into this week's episode of From the Chair. Uh, it's a privilege today to have my longtime friend, Scott Strickland, the athletic director at the University of Florida, join us. Scott, how are you doing today? Hey, Mike. Great to be with you, man. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Um, today, I'm going to I'm going to focus a little bit on two or three things, Scott. We're going to talk about career. We're going to talk about people. Um, I think people matter to you. I know they matter to you and they matter to me. And we're going to talk about people. And we're going to talk about we'll probably end a little bit talking about SEC and just the college landscape today. But uh, you've had an interesting and eclectic career in terms of the, number, the places you've been. Probably one of only a handful of folks who have worked at the number of SEC institutions that you've that you've been at. Certainly, you had time at Tulane and Baylor as well. But um, you know, graduate of Mississippi State, worked at Auburn, worked at Kentucky. Um, you know, obviously back at Mississippi State as athletic director, and then now at the University of Florida as as athletic director. And you know, obviously a storied league, great com- competition in the league. Uh, I'm really kind of intrigued as you reflect back on your career. Uh, the, let's call it the two or three, maybe three or four inflection points uh, in your career relative to the schools that you were at, the things that you were able to say, you could, as looking back, you can say we're informative to, to the job you're in now and we're impactful in terms of the job you're in now. And we'll talk about the people relative to that maybe in a few minutes, but if you wouldn't mind, let's come off the top of that. Well, that wow, that's you're going to make me think a little bit because uh, I've been really blessed and fortunate to, to be at um, – great institutions and what you find when you when you work at multiple places is 
you know, you, you, you obviously learn a little bit something new and different from each place because every school has its own strengths and, and every school has its own challenges and, and some things that they do really well that, that you learn from and then maybe some things that, that uh, are not strengths that maybe you can, you know, you, you try to help them with if you have experiences in those areas. So it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint anything in particular, but, but um, you know, the, just from a career path, um, getting to, to go work for Mitch Barnhart at Kentucky. And you said, we're going to talk about the people later on, but yeah, uh, so I go right getting, in. let's, let's walk them you know, getting, getting in a, I've been in um, media relations, sports information, media relations, communications, whatever the, the name was of whatever school, but I'd been at that throughout my career and had, had again, worked with great people and had a lot of great experiences, but um, you know, I, I got to Kentucky, Mitch had been AD for a year and he's now been there 20 years. That, gives you a sense of, of number one, his staying power, but secondly, where it was in that trajectory. And he had, he had, uh, was kind of building his own team. And, and I was fortunate enough to be a small part of that. And, and because he had brought in so many really talented, young, hungry, uh, staff members, I got a chance to learn at a high level from people who were a lot smarter than I was. And, and that was just a great learning experience. Uh, guys like Rob Mullins, who's now the AD at Oregon, uh, Greg Byrne, now the AD at Alabama, Mark Coyle. Um, and then just, you know, there's people who, who've stayed there. Jason Schlaufer, who, who's uh, a lot of, heads up a lot of their external stuff, just, you know, brilliant mind from a marketing perspective. Um, and just so many talented people that you got a chance to be a part of there. And, uh, and then I was still doing media relations work for Mitch. Um, and then uh, Greg Byrne became athletic director of Mississippi State and gave me the opportunity to, to get out of media relations and to more of a, of a deputy administrative fundraising development role. So those were really probably the two biggest pivot points, if you will, that uh, allowed me to, to, to have great learning opportunities and also maybe see a different path forward than just doing the traditional media relations role. Yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about Mitch and, uh, you know, I've, on this podcast series, we've we've interviewed Rob, we've interviewed Dwayne Peavy, um, obviously Greg, Byrne, um, a, a number of other guys. Yourself now, Mark Coyle, and you know Mitch actually hired me at Tennessee and gave me a, ch- a shot. So I'm curious, and and he's a he's a dear friend of mine personally, as I know he is of yours. Um, so it was you you were, you were a great place. So let's don't discount that, right? Uh, you were around great people. I just mentioned rolled off, you know, tongue of six or seven that eventually became athletic directors off of that staff at one time or another. Um, what do you think it is that you learn there? I mean, obviously you got to give Mitch credit for hiring really good people, right? But um, but there's there's something in the water uh, when you when you talk about the number of folks from that staff that have gone on to, to power five jobs. And, and let me back up for just a second. You could name a handful of folks like Joe Castiglione has had a lot of guys and ladies who've come through his shop that have gone on, Kevin White, Mike Alden. Um, you know, certainly Mitch is, is right there with, with that group of, of people. And I've got my perspective on it, but my, my perspective today doesn't matter. I'm interested in your perspective on what, what that was about. If I had to pinpoint one thing, it, it would be that, that Mitch hired people who had skill sets that complemented his abilities, you know, um, no matter how good someone is, we all have blind spots, we all have weak spots, and we need, we need to surround ourselves with people who can help us in those areas we may not be as strong in. And I thought Mitch did a really good job of that, uh, that 
the time I was at Kentucky. And then he let those people uh, do that, particular, whatever they were, their skill set uh, involved, he let them do it and didn't try to get in their way, didn't try to take credit, didn't try to, you know, um, you know, if you know Mitch, he's, he's the last guy to take credit, right? So he, he very much, um, um, you know, gave people the freedom to kind of operate in, in their sphere of influence. And, uh, you know, I think that's why, you know, we almost, we all, we all took ownership in what we did and learned, uh, made mistakes from a management standpoint. But, you know, Rob Mullins was, he was over the, the business office and, and was the deputy for the whole department. And, you know, he took that job very seriously and he had ownership in the place as if he were the athletic director, even though he knew, you know, he knew his role. Uh, same with Greg Byrne from a development standpoint and myself from a communication standpoint. Um, and there was, you know, you know, you learn a lot from seeing how those other people operate in that role. So you get, I guess, you know, you get talented people, you let them do their, what they do, but then they get a chance to learn not only from, from the boss and how he's managing a group of talented individuals, but you learn from one another. And I, I just remember I'd be in staff meetings, I'd be paying attention and, and there were always things that, that I'd leave that meeting thinking, I gotta get a lot better in this area because these, these other guys are really sharp in this area. Um, and so yeah. just, you know, it's, it was almost like taking a, uh, getting your doctorate in college athletics, just being around really bright people who were, uh, you know, we were all young, young and hungry and, you know, not necessarily am, ambitious trying to make a name for ourselves, but we were, we were trying to do the best we could for the University of Kentucky at that time. Hmm. So you, you alluded to it, you had your career path early on was in the, the media and communications path. And that's a, you know, look, communications, the ability to communicate is a critical piece of, of any kind of leader's success uh, narrative, I think. And, um, and then you, you, you know, Greg gave you an opportunity to do some other things when he brought you to Mississippi State, your alma mater. But was there a point in, was that the point in your career where you felt like, hey, maybe this can head down the path of eventually becoming an athletic director? Did you have desires relative to becoming an athletic director earlier in your career? Um, talk to that just a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, I never really uh, consciously aspired to, to being an AD. Uh, it just seemed like a long way off until being at Mississippi State and working for Greg and, and you know, the path became possible. Um, yeah. You know, not, not a given, but you know, you could, you could squint and maybe see a path how that might happen. I, I used to always think that if, if, uh, if I was fortunate enough to be the number two guy at a really good school, that, that was going to be a pretty good life. And there are a lot of times when I, <laughs> having been an athletic director now for 13 years, I still think that's a pretty good role to be. And I'm not sure it's not the best job in all of athletics in a lot of ways. I know this. Jay Jacob says it is. He works for you now. Yeah. He, he says it is. So, um, there, yeah. There's so, something, you know, who, who stands out to you? And then this is, this is probably back to that, maybe being a little unfair, but I told you I was going to riff off things a little bit. Is, uh, are there, is there a person or a couple people, um, in your career that, that you worked alongside that you can really say, man, that person was a great communicator. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the guy who hired me at Auburn, David Housel who, um, you know, came from the communication side, was obviously a legendary sports information director back when we called him sports information directors and um, ended up becoming the, the athletic director there at Auburn while I was working for him. In fact, I think I was the last assistant SID that, that David, that went to work for Auburn and David before he became athletic director. But he was, 
he he was uh, really gifted in communication, not just from a uh, what we all think of as PR, but you know he he would write a column every uh, in the game program, every football game program, every home game, and people would buy would collect the game program just to read David's column. You know he's a published author, so he's just a great communicator with uh, with the written word as well. Um, he would he would probably be the the first name that comes to mind. But you know there was another guy at Auburn I worked with. Uh, who became the, the, the SID after David was promoted, a guy named Kent Partridge. Kent is actually now the athletic director at West Alabama in Livingston. And, and you know, Kent was totally different than David, but there was a, I picked up a lot of uh, common sense wisdom about the communication role and, and how you interact, uh, not just with the media, but with coaches um, from, from both of those guys, from Kent and David. So, and then, you know, I was never a fundraiser, so there's this whole group of athletic direct, uh, current athletic directors that, that were probably one of the first generations that came up when being a, a development officer uh, coming up in fundraising was important. Mitch was one of those guys, Greg Byrne, John Curry, who, uh, who you tutored, um, you know, Chris Del Conte, Joe Castiglione, all those guys are, you know, uh, the best of the best, but they all came up as fundraisers. and. Um, I never had really been exposed to that until I went to work for Mitch and was able to work with Greg Byrne there at Kentucky. Uh, I've been around fundraisers, obviously, but I'd never been like had the opportunity to really learn that part of, of college athletics and that part of the business. That's a totally different type of communication, but a lot of the skills translate. And I used to always, when I was moving, learning the, the fundraising role, I remember thinking, you know, as a, as a, as a media relations professional in college athletics, you have to, um, you have to be able to, to communicate a message. You have to be able to have difficult conversations and you have to be able to ask people um, hard questions. And um, that's a lot of what fundraising is, I found out. Yeah. You know, I didn't know it at the time, but that kind of prepared me. So, you know, uh, you're, you're meeting with someone from Sports Illustrated or, uh, you know, someone calls and has a, uh, an accusation against your department that you have to respond to from a media relations standpoint. Uh, you have to develop a message. You have to have difficult conversations. You, you may have to be the one to go in and tell your athletic director or tell a high-profile high head coach, um, you know, you're about to get hit with this, and this is how I think you need to respond. And they may have a different way they, have, they want to respond that's not the wise course, and you have to sit there and stand up and say, I think you ought to do this instead. Um, and, so, and then you got to have difficult conversations, and I think of in fundraising, sometimes the difficult conversations, especially early on in as a fundraiser is asking people for money. The more you do it, the easier it gets. But um, so anyway, there's a lot of lot of those communication techniques that I thought were transferable, and they just are different. You have different audiences, and and you're kind of in different roles when you're presenting them. Yeah, yeah. I'm just real quickly on Housel. Obviously, I had the chance to interface with him a lot during my time as athletic director in the SEC, and you know, you'll never meet a more fine gentleman, right? I mean, the guy loves Auburn. Loved Auburn. Uh, and by the way, he's, he's got a book out. His most recent book was something like uh, Stories from the Back Booth or something like that, right? And and it's just right. a great story. It, it's got a little politics in it, a little faith in it, but a lot of Auburn stories in it, a lot of SEC stories in it. And um, great communicators you alluded to. Even I've noticed recently on Facebook, Facebook friends, he's actually been asking people what they want to talk about, right? And then say he gets into conversation on Facebook, just a dialogue with people. Just a, just a, a great, great guy. One of the one of the guys when you tell the story of the Southeastern Conference, uh, David Housel's name will be in there. Um, so you you are a 
you're you have great communication skills. I've always felt that you have a you have a strong following and on social media. You've got over eighty thousand Twitter followers. Uh, part of that's probably because of where you are, you know, and you've been in the league and eighty at two schools in the league. How do you decide? And and reading your feed, most of what you tweet on a regular basis is um, acknowledgement of student athletes and teams, congratulatory. Um, you know, notions, that kind of thing. How are you view, view, how do you view the use of Twitter as an athletic director in today's environment? Because as you know, some ADs stray away from it completely. Some will answer a, a tweet during the middle of a game. Uh, you know, tell me your philosophy, if you would. Yeah, my philosophy has probably changed as Twitter's has, uh, the longer we've had Twitter, uh, you know, I was I, I like gadgets. I was probably an early adopter when it came to Twitter and uh, did see it as a way you could, you know, break down barriers and, and, you know, engage with people in a way that you may not otherwise be able to. And I always say that, you know, social media and Twitter is, uh, is kind of like money. You know, it's neither good nor bad. It's how you use it that determines if it's good or bad. Yeah. Um, but I, I, uh, I'm, I'm having a much more circumspect relationship with social media in general these days. And, and it's not criticism, you know, that, that is, that comes with it. It's, it's, um, I, it's the banality of some of the conversations that occur, you know, just the, uh, uh, yeah. it, it, I, I don't know that we're, um, moving the public discourse forward in a positive, healthy way in social media, the way maybe early on, it seemed like there might be a possibility to do so. So I am, uh, I am reassessing, uh, my yeah. view of how effective a communication tool social media is. Obviously, it's important. Um, you've got to have a plan as a department. I, I'm just not certain that uh, how important it is as individuals to, to do it. I will, the, the, the way that it's really, um, you can cut through a lot of noise, right? Back in the day, if, you know, Mike, when you're an athletic director, if you had a message you want to get out to, to your constituents, you had to write up a press release or you had to call the local columnist and hope that he, you know, conveyed your message appropriately and it got through, but you had to go, you, you had to go through layers. That's and right. obviously the great thing about social media is you can, you can go directly to your audience. And so from that standpoint, it's still healthy. I just, um, it, it seems to bring out a lot of the craziers, at least much more so now than, than maybe it used to. And I, I use it primarily now just to consume information. I, I don't create uh, conversation near as much as I once did in, in those platforms. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a great point, Scott. And the thing I'm, and I'm not asking you for an answer to this. I, I'm mainly just talking um, off the top of my head based on what you just said. You know, the communicating with your constituent base is still going to continue to be something that's important uh, for a number of reasons, right? In time of crisis, or um, you know, in the time when you're having success, you want to get that message out front. We are hiring a new coach, all those kind of things. And so, I'm, I'm interested to watch the evolution of how that transpires over the next 12, 24, 36 months, because I do believe that that in some ways Twitter has become much like you you've articulated here, um, where somebody has a very it's, it's become very opinion driven. Right. And, and so um, I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, you know, there may be evolution of other social media channels. It may be that we go back to press releases. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure. But but I do believe that there will continue to be the need to communicate with the constituent base, particularly when um, the in as the as your 
donor base, your season ticket holder base starts to skew to a generation that has become accustomed to that kind of communication, you, you got to figure out how you're going to deliver the messaging, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, just as a, an offset here for just a second, one of the things I found interesting in our work is, and you know this, we really have, we have really um, drilled down on how do we hone our messaging very much more specific to individuals that we know are Gator fans or Bulldog fans or volunteer fans through the collection of data. And so you're not necessarily spewing it to all edges of the earth. You're focusing in on those that you know are on your website and they're buying your merchandise and they're making donations to um, Gator boosters, et cetera. So um, am I on the right track with that at all? Yeah, there's no question. Uh, understanding, having a purpose, I guess, as opposed to, you know, I think I think early on in social media, there was a novelty in, in communicating just because you could, right? Yeah. And now I, I think the point you're making is it, there's a chance to have really targeted, purposeful communications through through these things in a way using data, in a way where you you know you you're not uh, carpet bombing people, but you're you're just being a little more strategic with it. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you have two guys who are legends in their own right that are around your department. I know that, you know, they're not up in your business every day or anything like that, but yet they, they understand the Gators and I'm sure you lean on them for advice or counsel from time to time. And they're, they're two guys that you and I both know that are not necessarily short on opinion. And that's, uh, that's Jeremy Foley, who was the AD there for, you know, a quarter of a century. And then, and then obviously the, the, the old ball coach, Coach Spurrier, uh, great, great guys personally, by the way, but, um, how is your engagement with them as you, you know, you come in from a different place, you've already been a, an AD in the league and, you know, you have to understand the culture and you've, you've been able to understand it from a different place, but now you're in the middle of it, even though, look, we're talking six years in. So, uh, give me that, but, but how, how are you using, or how do you use counsel and your relationship with, with Jeremy and, and coach Spurrier to help you continue to understand What's important in Gainesville? Well, I'm incredibly fortunate to, to have both of those guys still around and, and serving roles here in the department. Uh, Coach Spurrier is, is our ambassador, um, and uh, uh, Jeremy is our, our emeritus AD. They both have offices here in the department. Uh, they don't really keep normal office hours, by the way, just so you know, uh, Mike, that's <laughs> something for all of us who are in this business to, to aspire to, to have that kind of setup. But uh, I'm kidding. And, but they are, um, it, you know, they are a wealth of, of information, and, and they're a great resource. You know, Jeremy and I meet regularly when he's in town, and because he still keeps up with, you know, what's going on in college athletics, he keeps up with industry. And I, uh, you know, I, I understand that there's a lot about um, both the University of Florida and college athletics in general that, that I still need help with in learning and understanding and just having different viewpoints. And Jeremy provides that. One of the great things about Jeremy is we get along really well. He's incredibly respectful of the, you know, the, the fact that, that he's no longer the AD and he did that. He made that choice on his own. And he always says that, Hey, you know, if I wanted to continue to be AD, I wouldn't have retired. Um, but, but we're great friends, but yet we look at things from very different uh, standpoints often. Um, advantage points. And so he's got a very, uh, he'll tell you, he's a very old school approach. And uh, obviously it served the Gators well, you know, probably the most successful athletic director in the history of the SEC. If you look at championships, one and overall success of the department. Um, but 
he, he would also readily admit that, that some of the things we're dealing with today that he doesn't know how he would handle that, you know, when you talk about transfer portal and name, name image, and likeness and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, but he still provides really good counsel. And, and the same thing with Coach Spurrier. Coach Spurrier obviously has, you know, here's a guy who played here in the 60s, won the Heisman Trophy, coached here for a dozen years, um, sharp as attack, and, and, you know, obviously still keeps up with, with what's going on in college football. So it's great to have those guys around. And uh, I don't, you know, it's, it'd be a disservice. Any of us who are in college athletics, we're really, we're really um, undermining our own success and the success of our current student athletes and coaches if we don't take advantage of resources like a Jeremy Foley or a Steve Spurrier. Um, I, I know when he was still living, you know, uh, Greg Sankey still called on Commissioner Slav, and I know he still calls on Commissioner Kramer, right? So uh, I was at Mississippi State, and Larry Templeton was still around, who had been AD for 20 years. And, um, you know, there's there's just something to be said for uh, being able to tap into people who have been set in the chair and, and understand some of the pressures and some of the challenges that come with that and can offer a perspective that can be helpful. You know, I, I, um, I had worked at the University of Tennessee 11 years before I became athletic director, and my predecessor, mentor, friend, almost father figure was Doug Dickey. And a lot of people don't know this, but when, when he retired and became athletic director emeritus, um, he and I were also neighbors, like literally neighbors, like shared the same driveway neighbors. And, you know, he would always, he would come and maybe opine on subjects every now and then and ask me if I wanted some tomatoes and, and all those kind of things. And, Hey, I noticed this dog over in your backyard, that kind of stuff. But he never really, um, I would say, expressed opinions uh, on my particular work. It was always to be there as a help, helper, right? The only time the only time he really ever said anything, one day, I'll never forget, I came home. We had had one of those AD meetings down in Birmingham, and we had voted on the tiebreaker system for uh, divisional champs to play in the football game. And this was – I'm going to, I won't make this exactly what it was, Scott, but, sim, you know, it's like the fifth tiebreaker. Um, he was wanting me to give, go through every tiebreak scenario, and then the fifth tiebreaker came down, and he was kind of like, so now how did you vote on that? And I, I told him, and he's like, don't believe I would have done that, you know. <laughs> so he still, he had those opinions, but he let me do my thing, right? And right. so – so having folks around that you can lean on that, I think is uh, time, time it's, is great. It's, so, it's so you, you mentioned the neighbor situation with Coach Dickey. Uh, Coach Spurrier is literally my across the street neighbor. Like our front doors face each other. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned he had an office here in the building, but uh, a lot of times the only place I see him is in our driveways. And um, <laughs> that does, ch it, it's a kind of a neat relationship because I, I can learn a lot about, uh, I learned a lot about the sport of football from five-minute driveway conversations with Steve Spurrier because he certainly knows a lot of it. And he love, he still loves talking about it. I love it, man. All right, so um, there are a handful of athletic directors that have chosen to have, um, you know, as part of their senior team, other former athletic directors. Um, you know, Sean Eichhorst is at Texas with CDC, and Tommy McClellan is, is down the street here with Candace, and you've got Jay on your staff. Um, you know, I'm sure that they're, uh, in addition to having worked with Jay in the league for a number of years, strategically speaking, what does that bring to your staff and to you personally as a leader to have someone who's also sat in that chair? Yeah. Uh, Jay Jacobs was AD at Auburn for 13 years and 
I, I first met Jay when, when I was working there. Uh, I mentioned when I was uh, with David Housel in the, uh, the mid-90s. Jay was a, a young assistant AD, one of these guys in charge of the car program or whatever, and, and then obviously later elevated to the athletic director role there. Um, you know, Jay, Jay uh, it, it's very similar to Jeremy, but from a different perspective, right? We all have uh, the old saying, we're all looking at the same elephant, we just have a different view. And, you know, Jay, Jay has a different view of things than I do, but he has, you know, uh, this, the same experience. And um, <clears throat> what it's, it's the most important thing when you're building a team is, is uh, you get a group of people that are trying to do what's best for the, for the department, right? So it's not um, necessarily somebody that's looking out for themselves, obviously, or somebody who's looking out just for me, but looking out for the department. And Jay understands that because he's been in that role. He knows how important it is to have people like that around him. So you think he just he brings you know someone who can who can be honest and and uh, give you a perspective. We are incredibly fortunate here at Florida because I, I feel like we have three or four staff members um, who either were athletic directors or probably should be by now. Uh, you know, Linda Teeler is is also on our executive team here. She chairs the Division One Council and um, is probably as as an accomplished of an athletic administrator as you can find and. Um, you know, I, I get I get the benefit of, of working alongside her every day. Chip Howard is another guy who's been here for a long, long time. He's probably responsible for every construction project that's happened here on campus the last 30 years. A lot of wisdom, uh, just a good guy to be around, a good culture guy. And you know, each of those each of those individuals, like Jay Casey's been Jay's Casey's been athletic director. The other two, if they wanted to, could probably go be one. Um, and so it just. I, I'm surrounded by brilliant people who, uh, you know, I, I don't have to make a decision on an island. I'm not, I'm not, you know, sitting alone on a mountaintop making a decision. I, I have really um, smart, uh, creative uh, people that I trust, you know, in the in the foxhole helping come up with decisions that need need to be made and do what's best for the Gators. Yeah. All right. So as if the league wasn't hard enough, now come. Texas and Oklahoma into the league uh, to, to just enhance the, the stature of the league. And, and obviously, you know, again, a couple programs that have won multiple national championships in multiple different kinds of sports. Um, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, you're having to get up every day preparing to win in a place like Florida, but the addition of these two schools, uh, just your feelings on the, you know, two programs that are heavily resourced, and you're going to be competing against them every day, just like you, you, you have with the other schools that have been in your league for a long time. Your thoughts on the addition? I think it's wonderful. It's, you know, um, for one thing, I think both those leagues fit the culture of the SEC. And, you know, you start looking at, you start looking across the landscape and if, you know, you play the parlor game of, you know, who, should, who would be a good team to add to the SEC. Um, it's, it, it's it's a short list if you're saying who makes our league better, right? Who makes the SEC that already has all these great um, great schools, great you know historical programs in it? Who can you go out and add that's going to actually add to that? And Texas, no, Texas and Oklahoma are on a very 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 short list, and so the opportunity to bring those two schools in, I think, is really good. Um, if we are worried about how hard the SEC is, we wouldn't. We probably wouldn't have done that, but that's the, you know the goal is you want to make the league as strong as possible. Yeah. We have seen uh, you know over the last thirty years as the SEC has kind of established itself as 
is one of, if not the leader in college athletics from a conference standpoint, that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? You know, so we've shared revenue equally uh, for, for years because that's the culture of this league. And we understand that, you know, the, the weakest among us being strong is going to make all of us better. And so, um, you know, no one in this league is, is backing down from competition. So I think it's great that they're joining us. I think it's going to be great for the fans. And you look at some of the matchups that we're going to be able to experience on a regular basis, not just in football. Obviously, there's going to be some unbelievable ones in football, but across all sports to, to have uh, our student athletes go to Austin and Norman and then have, you know, Oklahoma and Texas student athletes be able to come on each of our campuses. And, you know, uh, A&M is a great example. You know, there's, there's been, they've been such a great addition to the league. And, uh, and, you know, and, and Missouri, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not shut, I'm not shutting them out, but just because Texas and Texas A&M are in the same state, just point out that, you know, A&M has come in and, and you know, they, they bring a lot of to the table when they come on our campus and our fans are excited to see them. And I think we're going to, it's going to be similar with Texas and OU. So uh, it's, you know, anything we can do to make the SEC stronger is going to be good for the University of Florida and all the other schools in our league. And adding these two schools certainly does that. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Just real, I've got I got a couple of questions left here, Scott. But one, just you made me think of this as we we're talking about this. You know, for a long time, the Gators never played football and non-conference games outside the, the state of Florida, or at least in venture very far away. And you've you've scheduled uh, some some uh, matchups that are kind of go out of the time zone and uh, play in other states and everything. Um, you know, you obviously have a, a desire to do that. You have a reason to do that. Tell me. Um, you know, what led to you deciding that it was time to start playing some schools in some other regions? Well, I I know the Gators have, I think, been unfairly criticized that little. That is a nugget that the Gators haven't played a regular season, non-conference game outside the state of Florida since, I think, the early 90s. Um, and the reason is we play Florida State every year. And so every yeah. other year that's on the road, even though that's a non-conference game. If the state line had been drawn, you know, the state line from Alabama had been drawn a little further south, that would be a non-conference game out of the state, but it's <laughs> yeah. not, I get it. And then we've, we've played Miami several times through the years. Uh, so there's uh, the Gators have not necessarily shied away from competition, is my point, even though that is a, is a factoid people like throwing out there. But we're, we're opening up uh, uh, this coming season in September um, going to Utah as part of the back end of a home-and-home. Home. And it will be our first non-conference road game outside the state of Florida since I think 91 at Syracuse. So um, really we're, um, I believe we all need to play more high quality, high caliber matchups. And the economics for a long time uh, did not encourage that. And, and by that, I mean, we could uh, you know, schedule seven or eight home games, uh, play the SEC, play Florida State, and then you know, pay some, some non-high profile teams come in here and, and the fans would show up just the same. And we've seen in the last five to seven years that that's not what fans want to see. They want to see yeah. high caliber matchups. And really that, again, the economics allowed us to do that, but we really hurt our sport when we do that, in my opinion. And that's nothing against those, those programs that have been scheduled in that time, but um, people want to see good on good. They want to see teams of similar caliber go at it and that's, We're probably know. helped, by the way, with the expansion of the playoff in that regard. People maybe being willing to do more of that. Would you think? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. It would um, if the playoff committee would value overall quality instead of counting the number of losses. It would help even more. 
that. I served on the committee, and I can. That's a frustration I have is that, you know, I know in that room they are, they are um, really quick to point out if if a team from a Power Five league has played a brutal schedule and already has two losses, they're gonna they're gonna put a team from a weaker league that has that's undefeated ahead of them, uh, more times than not, and that that's really frustrating because I don't think we're really valuing nor are we encouraging really quality scheduling. And so we need to reward really good quality scheduling. And, um, and I know our fans are, I mean, we, we had a great uh, sellout crowd when Utah came here this past year. Uh, we have Miami at a home at home in 24 and 25. And in future years, we have Colorado and Arizona State, NC State, um, just have variety. And so in my mind, the perfect 12 game schedule is to play uh, 11 power five opponents. Uh, and, and I, and I say power five, that's just a, that's an easy term, but high quality. I don't, yeah. you know, there are some non power five programs that are high quality, but play 11 high quality and then go play an FCS team. And I think that's smart budgetarily. I think it's what our fans want to see. And I think if every team at this level would do so, uh, it would really benefit our sport across the board. We'd see better TV ratings. We'd be, see better attendance. Uh, that's what the players, those are the kind of games our players want to play in, our coaches want to play in them. And, you know, when we, what we have been doing for years was the equivalent of the Yankees playing, you know, 30 or 40 of their games against minor league teams during the season, you know, because yeah. we, we were basically taking about 20%, 25% of our schedule and playing teams that weren't, uh, on our, you know, at the same level of resources and everything else. And I just don't know that that's good for the game. Yeah. Well, hey, so look, I had two more questions, but in order for you to ever take my calls again, I'm going to not ask both of them. I'll just ask one and we'll close out on this one. Um, I'm curious, you know, your job is one that is, you know, it's 365, you know, 24-7, 365. You can, you get asked to do things every day. You could be in an event. You could be with your student athletes, you could be with your coaches, you could be with your staff, literally every hour of every day. You've got a family. Um, what do you do to find balance in your life to the extent you can, Scott? I mean, fortunately, we're, you know, you're in a business where you can bring your family alongside from time to time, but, but it's, it's, it's critical. The more the pressure builds in these jobs, um, you're speaking to your peers now. I mean, most of the listeners of this podcast are, you know, staff members, um, uh, around the country, fellow athletic directors, how are you personally finding the space to recharge your own batteries, whether it's mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, um, even your own professional growth outside of the norm? What, how, does, how do you prepare yourself to find that, that space and what are you doing or are you doing that? Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And, um, you know, I, I had, I had, uh, people I worked with early in my career who really uh, uh, encouraged that kind of balance to be a priority. You know, you, we talked about David Housel. I remember David Housel once saying when he was athletic director, uh, either my schedule can control me or I can control my schedule. And I'm, I'm going to choose to control my schedule. That just always stuck with me. But uh, ultimately I, I can't, cause you're exactly right. It would be so easy just to uh, fill up 24 hours in a day with, uh, all the things reaching out for your attention and at some point you've got to you've got to draw lines and put barriers in place and so um i you know i uh, been married for the 30 years this summer i have a great wife is incredibly supportive we did i have been able to bring your fam my family along so i encourage anybody um 
who who is in this profession, especially at a young age, is you have a family, uh, find ways to to take your kids to a you know to the, the games on the weekends or on the week on the, even the weekday nights if you can you know conflict with school stuff, uh, have them be a part of it to the extent possible. Um, I don't know how anyone can survive in this business without a supportive spouse. And so I, I think having a rock star wife or, or husband, as the case may be, who, who understands the demands of the job and is supportive um, is, you know, that, I know I've, been, I've greatly benefited from, from Anne and, and her understanding and approach to, to our life together and doing this. Um, and then just, you know, um, I, I have not always done a great job of this. My daughters who are both in college now, if they heard this podcast, they would, they would probably throw a flag on what I'm about to say. But uh, learning to uh, put the phone down and when you're when you're not at work and uh, unplugging and disconnecting to the extent you can is uh, something. I'll put it this way: if my daughters are listening, something I've, I I could have always done better at, and I'm find I'm trying to to make that a priority. Um, but it's uh, you know there's a reason the good Lord gave us a Sabbath is because he wanted us to have time away from the, the duties and tasks that are before us. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to put yourself in a bad spot if you don't, if you don't step away from time to time on a regular basis. Yeah. And look, you know, Beth, so I, you'll understand, appreciate what I'm getting ready to say. She, uh, she told me one time, you know, I, ha- I got into a habit for a while there where I might call and leave a message to my senior staff at 1030 at night. And it usually was related to putting a marker down for something I wanted to talk about the next day. But she would always say, hey, Mike, when you call John Curry at 1030 at night, he thinks because you're the athletic director, you want an answer. And then that just, you know, that discombobulates his world with his Mary Lawrence and his family. And so, you know, part of your being example is to be a good leader for your staff. You know, oh, you know, just like stab me in the heart a little bit. Right. But right. but I, I started to learn how do you best do that? Because, you know, as leaders, we have to exhibit good leadership um, in, in the in the course. You know, it's funny, I, Mark Harlan's interview that we did on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I'm not suggesting this is the right thing for everybody, but he said because of the number of young people that work, you know, just, you know, lots of hours at these weekend games, they've started giving some of their staff Mondays off because if they've worked events all week, all weekend long. And so we have to learn how we're going to evolve for the future uh, relative to work. Workflows is different from today's world. You know, that's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great idea, by the way, that Mark gave you. Um, I, to that point, I, I did not always, I've not always done this, but here in the last few years, I have tried, I have stopped myself from sending a weekend text or email for the very reason you just mentioned the, you know, don't cause stress or, or, um, work for somebody because we we all have really good people working for us right and they want to they want to be successful and they want to do what's being asked of them and they're not you to your point if you send a a, a reminder text on a saturday afternoon they're going to be thinking about it for the next 36 hours till monday morning and that's not yeah. healthy for them either that's really good advice yeah well hey look i let you off the hook i was going to ask you about the future of the ncaa so we won't talk about <laughs> that on on this call uh i uh <laughs> hey i appreciate you not asking that because i would not want to have to be deposed and i have some thoughts and ideas that uh attorneys would probably you know like to get a hold of but we've got a i'll give you i'll give you a 15 second answer which is uh we need to we need to understand we don't live in a world of idealism we live in a world of realism and we yeah. need to uh 
we need to be willing to look at a world that may not have been existed in the past and, and figure out a way to make that work. Amen. That's a good way to end on. Yeah, look, I, I knew this would be a good conversation. Um, obviously, there's a lot more we can talk about. We'll talk about offline at some point. So uh, I really appreciate you sticking with me here today, Scott, and giving me the time. Hey, Mike, I appreciate it, man. You're you're uh, you're one of the, the, the greats of this business, and I mean that. Uh, great friend, great example, and uh, consider you uh, someone I've always looked up to. So thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. All right, great. All right, folks, you've been listening to From the Chair. I'm Mike Hamilton, your host, and today's guest has been Scott Strickland, the Director of Athletics at the University of Florida. Uh, we appreciate you listening each and every week, and we'll see you next time. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.